Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. May 16th, 2021, episode 195, Gobsmacked. Hello, everyone. Welcome into the corner, the Beekeeper's Corner. It's a little corner where you can come and be with others who like to play with bees. I'm your host, Kevin England, and in these days of full-blown spring, it feels a little daunting at times to keep pace with the sheer eruption of colony expansion that occurs in those years where the fruitful spring makes, well, colonies explode. It's been a good spring so far, and as you'll hear later in the local hive report, we have bees coming out of our ears. It's kind of funny how I forget that a lot of hives is a lot of work, and every once in a while I get ambitious and then come back to get that sensibility when I try to keep up with the expansion. I've kind of done it to myself, as if I don't experiment with so many things, and maybe it wouldn't be so hard. But alas, I am who I am, and you'll get to hear all of the things I get myself into. I suppose looking over my topics that I have a lot to talk about, so let me give you a quick run-through, and then we'll get to business. A few news and notes from around the beekeeping world for roundtables. First up, ask the girls how the bees are playing a role in COVID detection. Number two, propolis extractor boxes. I'll tell you what they are and how to use them. Roundtable number three, I finally set up the camera and filmed my process for cleaning frames. Roundtable number four, putting it up. It's about discovering a book that focuses on canning recipes that use honey instead of sugar. Roundtable number five, I've got my eye on you. Exploration of how birds and bees sometimes don't mix and some ideas about what to do about it. In roundtable number six, a short note to say, we now have a merchandise store. I'll have a quick call out to the URL you could use to score some BK Corner t-shirts or some other goodies. For topics, the first one I want to go back and explore spring feeding and the guidance that we give people for new hives and spring feeding in general. I'm going to try to instill a new principle to latch on to. You'll see what I mean when you get there. The final topic for the episode is eight frame polystyrene hives. I have some new ones and I'll talk about them and why I made the plunge. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of stuff to cover. So let's get to it. To the first round table. Round table number one, I call this one, Ask the Girls. Is it COVID? Ask the Girls. In another chapter of Using Bees for Detection, add COVID to the things that you can train bees to detect. We've been reporting in the past that bees can be trained to detect explosives, narcotics, and other things. Researchers recently reported that in short order, they used the reward and exposure technique to train bees to detect the unique odor of COVID-19 virus. And if they use a handful of bees, they can get up to a 95% accuracy detection rate. The article that I read, call out to Frank Mortimer for sharing this out, stated that the study was not peer-reviewed yet, but I suspect that 
What was reported is likely to be fully plausible, as if you look at what I shared in the opening, bees have been trained using the Pavlovian-type response to detect other odors, so why not COVID? I think the interesting twist to this is that COVID actually has an odor. Who knew? To be more illustrative, in case you've never heard of this Pavlovian-style response, they expose bees to food. And at the same time, they expose it to the target odor. In time, they are trained to associate the two things together. When bees expect food on cue, they extend their proboscis. The analog for humans is their tongue. In time, if you simply present the odor, they think it's feeding time and they stick out the proboscis expecting food and you can tell by the reaction of the bee that they have detected the odor. It's kind of cool. And in application, this could present a method that would work in countries that do not have the resources to develop costly testing regimes. Because, you know, you think about all the test kits that have burned through in the United States alone. It has to be expensive and an engineering effort. Kevin Moment. Have you ever heard about what it takes to create a stirring stick? All the stuff that they go through from a perspective. When they teach us about hygiene and good clinical practices at work, they talk about the simplicity of a stirring stick. You know, the little wooden thing that you might put in your coffee or the equivalent when you're stirring things in a lab. The amount of effort that goes to make sure that that thing is safe and effective for use at whatever you're doing with it is astonishing from an industry standpoint. Now take that and apply it tenfold to the COVID tests that they have. Using the bees might be a cost-effective method for someone who doesn't go through that amount of rigor. And of Kevin moment. The thing about countries that could possibly employ this, well, honeybees are in abundance. And apparently, with just with a little training, many of them, could be put to work with little or no cost. So another cool chapter of things bees have been trained to detect. And thanks, Frank, for sharing that out. I'll have a link in the show notes to the Washington Post article that Frank shared. Roundtable number two, propolis extractor. There was a discussion on a Facebook page recently about collecting propolis. I just talked about this not too long ago on the show and discussed the methods for using a propolis screen, and that was at the heart of this thread. The conjecture was the plastic propolis screens. What do we know about them? It's likely that many of the plastics we use were made from a faraway place, and you really can't know the origin of the manufacturing process. And maybe it's listed as food safe, but maybe it really isn't. You, you can't tie back to the origin of it. That led to the conversation about collecting propolis in alternative ways and an interesting exchange of ideas. Now, if you look at the plastic side of things, you're extracting using an extraction method to get what you want out of the propolis, but the propolis, which was exposed to toxic plastics, would extract those things that leach out possibly. So let's go another route. One method I had never heard of was this thing referred to, and it's a gadget, I would call it, a propolis extractor. And the name's a bit misleading. 
But there's a premise to it, and I'll see if I can explain how it works. The first thing to say is it requires a special hive body, a special box. In the video that I watched, the person constructed a hive body with a normal front and back, but the sides were altered. Down through the center of the side, a slit was cut out. So if you could picture cutting the side of a hive into three parts, a top part, a bottom part, and a gap in between. They took this specialized piece of wood with a seam in the middle of it, and they screwed it in that slot. Yes, it resulted in a hive that had a hole through the side, but that's the point of it. When you take this piece and you stick it in that slot, the bees will propolize that slot and close it because they're using the front entrance and they don't want that open. Now the slot is cut in such a way so the bees can't come and go, but it's big enough that the bees would fill it with propolis. What the beekeeper does then is when they want to harvest the propolis, they collect the bar, take another one and put it back so they can get more, and they freeze it and break out the propolis, and then they just keep exchanging this throughout the season, and this is how they collect propolis without plastic. Apparently down in Latin America, where this video originated from, this is a better known practice. I've never seen any hives in the United States that employ this method. I've always heard about the propolis screen trap, and I suppose some could say that you could use a metal propolis trap, which would avoid the plastic piece, but then again, what's the metal made of? So an interesting idea on propolis collection, and I'll have a link in the show notes to this specialized propolis box. Uh, do note that the language is not English, but you can turn the subtitles on and the subtitles will translate it for you and you can see what's going on. But honestly, if you look at the hive, you kind of get the gist right away. Roundtable number three. This will be a quick one. I did it. I finally did it. Frame cleaning video. I finished all the frames that I've been cleaning for months and Towards the end of it, and the way that I honed the process, I finished the video and I posted it. If you go to youtube.com slash beekeepers corner, you'll see the video featured there. One thing that I talked about in the previous discussion about this was this specialized tool that I used that I didn't know what it was. Recently, I just discovered that it's a linoleum knife. That's what this tool is. I had talked about this flat blade knife tool that has like a curved hook, like a bent finger. And that's what this thing was. I never really knew what the tool was for. I called it a glazer tool because I was under the impression that you use it to take the, the glaze out of a window, an old-fashioned window. But actually, it turns out it's a linoleum knife. So if you do a search on the linoleum knife, you get to see what this thing looks like. And it's a really handy tool to use to clean out frames and to actually have in your box. Um, it, it's a really sturdy but thin and utility knife that would be a good addition to a beekeeping kit. So look in the show notes for the video for cleaning old comb. And I want to make a note of something. A lot of times 
we've posted videos on that channel and on the youtube.com slash nwnjba channel. Both of those channels right now, monetization is turned off, meaning we're not showing ads. There's a recent change in YouTube policy where they, YouTube, not us, Northwest, have turned the ads on. So if you go watch our videos, now all of a sudden you have an ad in front of it. Now it plays for a couple seconds and you can click skip ads, but do note, wasn't us that did that, it's them. In the grand scheme of things, and thinking glass is half full, they provide a phenomenal service in YouTube. And with our channels, there's no monetization going on. So I guess they have a right to try and make their money back, and I'm not going to begrudge them of that. So cleaning old comb from frames, look for a link in the show notes. I'll show you the whole process start to finish and the different tools and how I set up my station when I did it. I'm happy to have that one out in the catalog because I think that's something that a lot of people do. And it sure would be nice to cut to the chase and know how to do it well and get all the tips and tricks in one place. And I think I did a good job on the video for doing that. Roundtable number four, I call this one putting it up. At Fresh Honey, it might seem like a luxury to many people, but to beekeepers, especially ones that have been doing it for a decade, the truth is sometimes we find spare reserves in the cupboards and wonder if there are things we can do with all of our excess stores. During this COVID period, many have turned to canning foods as an outlet, and I suspect that our summer this year will be rife with Homemade goods like no other time in the past at local farm stands and, you know, in our conversations with neighbors, handing things over and try this and see this thing I made. With that summer bounty, the banquet of fruits especially leads to many options for jellies and preserves. And the thing is, many of the canning recipes that you'll find in, say, the ball book or other things use copious amounts of sugar. And, well, wouldn't it be great if we could find some sound way with tested recipes to substitute honey instead? A beekeeper's dilemma is that there are not a lot of tested canned recipes that impart honey in lieu of sugar. I'm sure there's several obvious reasons for that. You know, you could think the flavor that honey imparts, cost of honey, you know, and the fact that for others, honey is not something that they readily have copious amounts of. But it sure would be nice if we, the people who have supplies, had a repository of recipes to follow. In a roundabout way, as it often is, I was looking at one thing, which I'll talk about in a moment, and discovered another. So there's this book published from 1979 that has a honey canning focus. That book is Putting It Up With Honey, a Natural Foods Canning and Preserving Cookbook, written by Susan Geiskopf Hadler. Now, I was looking at this book on Amazon, and someone in the reviews wrote a description of what the book contains, because oddly enough, there's really no preview of the interior of this book on Amazon, like there usually is, so you can't get a sense of what's in there. The review said, quote, The book begins with a short introduction describing canning methods and equipment, 
Then there are chapters on jams, preserves, butters, and conserves, canned fruits, pickling, and dried foods, end quote. I think, since there are a wide range of canning recipes and techniques, I'm sure that it's not going to be 100% honey-only recipes, but I suspect that it should have, given the title, a heavy honey focus, and that's good enough for me, so I ordered a used copy, and it should be here any day now. While I finished talking about the book, I wanted to turn the corner and talk about something similar but different, the thing that led me to this. And I ask you a question. How, in Roman times, did they cure meat? Think about the things that you've learned. Think back to the discussion of times where refrigeration was not available and that a family could not eat a whole butchered cow, goat, pig, or whatever it was. What did we learn about the ways that they could ensure use of the full animal? I would think most of you thought about curing the meat in some way, salting it, drying it, pickling it. Yeah, all good ways and completely legit, but there was one more, maybe you guessed it already given the topic, that I never gave consideration to, and it turns out it was a wider practice back in those days than I ever knew. Now, if you think about the methods discussed, they work in some respects when the weather is fair. But what of the times where there's snow on the ground? Could you sprinkle meat with salt and cure it in the sun? And I suppose you could in a place where, where I don't know, conditions warrant. But Or you could just stick it in the snow. That might work if the snow is persistent. But you know how winter goes. It's warm in the day and cold at night and so on. So there's a lot of reasons why some of this is not practical. Thinking of the methods to cure, the real principle is you want to kill the bad bugs from spoiling the meat, making you sick. And salt and vinegar and other coatings, they even used wine, it said, made inhospitable conditions for the bad bugs to take hold. You know what else does that? Yeah, you probably guessed it, honey. (laughs) So did you know that in the Roman times they would chop up meat put it in a container after a bit of prep, and cover it with honey to preserve it. I didn't know that. Nope. They would coat each piece in honey, put it in a container, and then pour honey over to expel any of the oxygen, seal it in an airtight container, and that would be a method of preservation. Now, the source that I was looking at indicates that the meat was either cooked or salted or treated in some way, to reduce the moisture and that's the key you don't want the moisture to mix with the honey because it'll dilute it and then allow for fermentation and so on and to be clear i don't think this would work with raw meat as the the blood and juices would dilute the honey and cause problems later on when they wanted to use it they would take it out of the jar or container or whatever they had and they would rinse the honey off boil it in milk if it was salted so cured meats if it's really salty and you don't want to eat all that salt boil it in milk and it takes the salt out of the meat and starts to cook the meat leaches it out and then you can consume it without eating a salt lick so how about that that's interesting 
Now, if you know me, <laughs> I'm one of those people that's game to try all this stuff. But I think in this case, I'm not going to do it. Nope. That sounds a little too botulism risky to me. Should the apocalypse hit someday, though, I suppose I'll have this in my back pocket. And on the whole, this is not one that I will not be trying. And there were cautions from nutritionists saying that by today's food safety standards, this one is a bit dodgy. So even though I am the adventurous type, I would say to you, please do not try this. Um, there's one last twist to mention about using honey to coat meat. Not only is it applicable for preserving uncooked meats, apparently you could use it to coat meats stashed in the chill chest and they last longer. Scientific studies indicate that honey exceeded the ability for shelf-stable cooked meats even better than some of the more common industry preservatives in the food industry. And for all those reasons that we talk about as honey builds peroxide and things like that, we've covered a lot of this on the show. Now, the downside, if you could talk about that, of taking your cooked hamburger and giving it a honey coating, stashing it in a chill chest so it lasts longer, if that's what you're doing, or whatever meat it might be, is that, of course, it's going to have a sweet honey taste to it. And, you know, if you really don't want that, you could rinse it off, but it's always going to have a sugary flavor, I'm guessing. And it does make whatever you're cooking brown differently. It's going to brown the Maillard effect. And you might think something's done because it looks brown. It's really the honey deceiving you on that. But, you know, I could imagine chicken pork, other things covered in honey. That makes sense, like barbecue sauce. Yeah, that's all I guess I need to say on this. I don't go any further on this particular aspect, but it goes to show that honey is, of course, a superfood, and its utility is simply amazing, but you knew that. I'll have a link to the Amazon Putting It Up With Honey, A Natural Food Canning and Preserving Cookbook on the show notes, and a couple other links that coincide with uh, what I talked about. Roundtable number five. I've got my eye on you. As spring is in full swing here in New Jersey, it means the birds are aplenty in our area and likely yours. We live in a specific area that's known to be rich with different bird types, and it's not uncommon to see over a dozen types in any given day when we work in the yard or wander down the road in our morning walks. 99% of the time, we love our bird friends, but when it comes to our beekeeping, there are some unwelcome encounters, including our spate with, well, of all things, catbirds. Over the past few years, catbirds have become ubiquitous around our apiary, and they sit day in and day out in the bushes and woods around the apiary, staking out flying bees. While we do not appreciate losing any bees, it becomes especially Difficult, considering this time of year we're trying to raise and rear queens, and, you know, they don't fly as well. It seems we're not alone in this nuisance, as I've heard from others in our area about this same problem, and I noticed a similar discussion taking place recently on a Facebook feed. In that thread, the discussion turned from identification of their pest, P. 
appears it might have been a scarlet tinger, to what could be done about it, and I was interested in seeing the creative ways that people employed. So what do you do when you have this issue? It's a good question. Oh, Kevin moment. Can't believe I said that. But in this context, maybe I give myself a pass. You see, there's one thing in this world that sets me off, and that is being in some sort of conversational thing. Someone's facilitating a Q&A, and the host responds to every question that comes in with, that's a great question. That's a great question. You know, that's a great question. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a question. It's just a question. That's almost like a crutch in public speaking. So please, for those of us out there who have fatigue over this technique, that's a great question. Please never, never, never reply with, that's a great question. End of Kevin Diatribe, I guess. So to answer that great question, <laughs> I think there's some common takes on a theme. Right? The most prominent recommendation is to employ a mock predator bird. We have some of these in our yard, owls and such. And if I'm being honest, the birds are not fooled. I think for this to be truly effective, you have to go about moving the statue around. Otherwise, it simply becomes ignored. And in time, it's just another bird. Another common strategy is to use something that will disturb the birds. The most common technique is to put something shiny, something that moves with reflective surfaces. This is supposed to disturb the birds and keep them from coming into the space. Again, I would say it's kind of a mixed bag. We have spinning whirly gigs in our yards and the birds are not phased by them. In fact, we have a bird feeder right next to one of them and they could care less about the thing. Like any predator, Probably one of the more effective approaches is to limit the food supply or go completely the other way and purposely feed the birds so that you're trying to lure them to the feed and not to prey on your bees. I guess um, this means finding what appeases your predators and giving it a go. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I can't say we've ever gone down that path. We've we obviously feed the birds, but I wouldn't know what to feed cat birds. And it would be my luck that we would feed the cat birds to make them more healthy and happy. And they would make more cat birds, which would be more prey on the bees. So in the end, I think the one recommendation that someone offered up might be a variation on one of the themes. There was a post by Michelle Kibba. I want to give her credit that said, take an aluminum pie plate, draw a giant eyeball on each side. She took one of these and hung it next to her hives, and when they blew in the wind, they terrified the birds in the space. Sounds plausible, and I've heard that before in other times. I recently moved our bees and did notice that the catbirds have not found the new apiary yet. Perhaps if the problem resurfaces, I'm going to have to employ my creative side with some Sharpies. To put an exclamation point, there's one less practiced method, but by way of thinking, truly effective, and that is to employ protective netting. It's really probably the only answer, and you could see in orchards who deal with this problem, this is what they do. 
It might prevent the birds from landing in and around the hives. And this would solve the problem that this particular person was having where the bird was just sitting on top of the hive, catching whatever she wanted, he, she, and coming back with it. And there were bee carcasses all over the roof of the hive. Now, of course, when the bees fly away, well, the birds could fly after them. So I, I don't know. It's like trying to prevent sand from slipping through a sieve. You could at least protect locally the bees that can get away from the hives with some velocity and give them a fighting chance. Yeah, it's a problem. If you have a good suggestion, Kevin at bkcorner.org. Love to hear what your ideas are. And if you have a good one, we'll share it back out. Roundtable number six, Merch. I'll share that in my spare time on Monday nights, broadcasting simulation NASCAR racing on the eSports Vidane TV channel for the Sim 500 Trans Service Cup Series. As part of the broadcasting, we do sponsor reads, and one of them plugs the broadcasting company that I work through, Vidane TV, through their merchandising website. In talking with the producer-owner of that company, I found that the e-commerce solution he was using called Teespring was simple to set up. And since I have graphics already in the queue for the podcast production, it was not that much of a leap to make my own store for the show. So a few weeks back, I toiled with some designs and I made up some shirts, mugs, decals, and other things, and I think I have it to my liking. One of the things, me being me, is that I used to make shirts in the past life, and I'm a stickler for what the job looks like after printing, so I ordered a bunch of the sample shirts and decals and found that, to my liking, they are really decent quality, so now I'm comfortable with opening up the store. You could visit the store by using the URL store.bkcorner.org. That will redirect you to the gibberish store URL, that is, the real URL over at Teespring. Let me spend a moment just talking about a few things about the store itself. Teespring, which I think they're now trying to change their name to just simply Spring, their operation sets the cost of the goods that are sold by the quality of what you choose to sell in their catalog. By that, I mean you could choose a common t-shirt, an upscale t-shirt, an ad performance-based material highfalutin t-shirt, and so on. Materials, styles, cuts, plenty of choices. When you see that one thing in the store costs more than another, it's usually due to the cost that Spring charges for the underlying products. So me being me, I like to keep things simple, so I chose all the middle-of-the-road common offerings. As you choose each option to sell, you also get to choose what colors are available, and I would lean, personally, towards gold and black, as they are the show colors. But if you want a red t-shirt, I think I open the option. So just click through and you can change to the color you want. You know, some people might not want to wear a gold-based shirt. And you know, I'm okay with that. Coming back to the price, the markup is up to me. I simply went down to the cost of the good from spring and I tacked a dollar, dollar and a half. I will say, what I often say, is I just wanted a store. I'm not in it for the money. 
but I had to tack on some overhead, as the store will warn you if you sell it with no profit margin. So the extra dollar provides a buffer. And if the price goes up, I won't have to go in and just keep fiddling with the prices on the store. As bucket lists go, this one finally gets checked. And I have to admit, as humble as I am about the whole promotion side of this thing, I kind of think it's cool that I can finally wear a Beekeeper's Corner t-shirt. And I think it's going to be mind-blowing to be out in public someday and come across another person who has one on. That'll be one of those moments where you know you've made it. <laughs> so head over to the offering, store.bkcorner.org, and get yourself something. And if you do, shoot off a quick selfie and send it along, kevin at bkcorner.org. You'll certainly make my day. Turning the corner, I want to go to topic number one, spring feeding. I feel like sometimes I don't do enough talking about management of bees and wanted to bring this topic up because it's topical <laughs> something that came up recently i was doing a management mentoring session with a group of new beekeepers and this is a group of beekeepers who have recently employed packages and or put nukes in the box but i think it applies to generally everyone there's a time in beekeeping when you start to form impressions of something and then you cement them and they become a way of life for you. And it dawned on me recently that we tend to repeat things that we hear because this is the dogma. And there's sometimes not a lot of soul searching on what you're saying and what the impact of that is. So typically you will hear, and this is the core to this topic, feed your bees, feed them. When you put a package in a hive, when you put a nuke in a hive, feed your bees. One to one until they're full grown. I'm starting to rethink that theory. And I'll go back to a book that I read, which had a different take on this. And this is one of those things where I don't know if there's other people that do it differently, right? This this reminds me of that, uh, of the sensibility when it's too cold to go into your bees. We think it's too cold when it's 60 or below here in New Jersey, but in Canada, that's balmy for them. So they're waiting for 60 or 50 to open their hives. So how much do you feed a colony? Now, what dictates that a lot of time is the vessel that you use. And people employ all kinds of approaches, but let's just go first with things that are available in a bee catalog. A division board feeder. These are these plastic frame-shaped feeders that slide in. You usually put them in slot 1 or slot 10. They hold a gallon of liquid. If they hold a gallon of liquid, wouldn't you put a gallon of liquid in it? Yeah, I think most people would. Is a gallon of liquid the right size? You would assume that if they made the device to hold a gallon of liquid, then you should pour a gallon of liquid in it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it a gallon. That presupposes that whenever you fill that device and close your hive, you poured a gallon in, you, you should be okay with that. But the question lies with when is that good and when can that hurt you? 
If you put a new package into a hive on foundation and they tell you feed the bees, well, in the beginning when you put a package in and they have no comb, they have to build comb, they're on foundation. This is a brand new beekeeper. The bees are not going to go forage for the most part in the first part of their lifestyle in that hive because they have nothing, no need to forage. If you're feeding them, like somebody said, put a gallon in, they're eating from the feed. But you know what? In New Jersey, when the bees come up from Georgia and they've been in that box for days and days and days, they're given a can and that can is three quarters full by the time it arrives to New Jersey. So how much are they really eating? Not a lot. Not a lot. Do they need a gallon of liquid to sustain them until they get established? They draw comb and they the queen starts laying and they have need to go forage for pollen. And they're going to go out and find what nectar is there and so on and get established. They just came six days out of Georgia with a can, and they didn't use it all. So, what is the downside? Just pour a gallon in. If they want it, they take it, and if not, they don't. Bees hoard in the spring. That's what they do. It's why we have nectar storage to honey. And a lot of times what I find is new beekeepers get themselves in trouble because they overfeed. It is pretty common, and I'm not blaming new beekeepers on this, that they'll see supersedure cells. And one of the things you have to worry about, and I have pictures of this year on year, of uh, I've done it myself, where you overfeed and they backfill every cell, including the brood chamber, and the queen can't lay. Now, from a biology standpoint, in order for harmony to occur inside that colony, the queen must lay. She's laying eggs, and those eggs and the brood that develop give off a pheromone, and that scent holds the hive together. It means the queen is operational, and it also means the queen is moving around doing her thing, and she's coming into contact with all of the bees that are paying attention to her. On the opposite side, if every cell that they build, even in the periphery, gets immediately stored with some sort of liquid because there's a gallon of liquid over to the side and the bees are taking it in and hoarding it, then you're causing problems. Now, I want you to think about the mass of bees, the physical mass inside the hive. If you had to feed them, what would they require in order to sustain do they need a gallon? They probably don't. And in a book I read, what someone did was they put a package in and they put a tin can, like a tuna fish can. And every day they would come by and take a tuna fish can and slide it through under the entrance. And every day they'd come and collect the can, pour out whatever they didn't take and come back and put it in. And if they noticed that they didn't touch it, they'd skip a day. Because if they didn't eat any of it, they didn't need it. There was no chance in the tin can method, the tuna can method, that they were going to overfeed the bees. 
If it was empty, they would fill it, but they would never pour a gallon in. I'm going to go another route. It's springtime. You could not find a more optimal time to stick a package in a hive or a nuke in a hive and watch the colony grow. And this is the rule that I've just made up that I'm going to follow and I'm going to say from now on. If you're driving around and you see a tree with flowers on it anywhere in your neighborhood in the springtime, you don't need to feed a gallon a week. You don't. I would even be leery of putting a cord in, but you could put a cord in if you want to be happy. But honestly, I don't even think you need to feed them. And you know what? I have hives out in my yard right now that are swarms that are about the size of a package. And I'm not feeding anything right now. I'm not. And if I stand at the entrance, I could see once the hive got established, they built some comb and the queen started laying, the foragers are going a bazillion miles an hour. And so you could say to yourself, well, Kevin, you're creating all this work for them. They've got to go out and find that and bring it back and ripen it and eat it and do whatever they're going to do with it, where they could just go over to the side or up to the top and pull it down and they have it. Think of all the energy they're wasting flying out. This is where I come back to the popsicle analogy. You could take sugar and water and make a popsicle with some flavoring, or you can eat an apple and get the energy that comes and the nutrition and the vitamins and enzymes and other things that come from the natural product versus the popsicle. Our sugar water is a popsicle equivalent. That's a little squishy, sorry. Uh, but I'm just going to say that out loud, right? Because some people will say sugar sugar and it doesn't matter. And nah, nah, nah. But my sensibility is the nectar coming from the plants is contributing something to the party. And why not? You have the most incredible bounty of food out there at that time. So I'm almost walking away from spring feeding. I certainly don't believe you should be feeding a full-size colony to stimulate them unless you have some major objective. Now I'm talking about a hobbyist, hobbyist operation here. If your hive is healthy and full-size and your neighborhood has great forage in an abundance, you don't need to feed. Now, what do I tell our new people? I still say put a feeder on the inside and give them a quart a week and watch what they're taking down. But the more important thing is in your hive inspections, pull up that frame and you better see a dry area in the brood chamber where the queen needs to lay. So what this looks like is when you pull out a frame where the queen is operational, you see something the size of a football in the middle of the frame. That's open, and you see eggs and larvae brood in all stages. And then it's surrounded by, trust the rainbow, a rainbow of pollen with nectar stored up in the corners. If I pull that frame out, it doesn't look the way I just described. Then you can make alterations. And let's just stay with the nectar part of this. You get one of two conditions. One, you pull it up and the corners are dry. 
that means you can give them more liquid because they'll store it up there and have it readily available for where they're building their brood. So the corners are dry, the frame is dry, the brood area is dry. You can give them more liquid feed. If you pull it up and you see any sense that the corners are completely flush and they're putting any sense of storage in and around the brood hole, you're feeding too much and you're leading towards that path. So use your power of observations to determine what amount of food you should be doing. Now this is the instruction we give our new beekeepers. February, March, April, depending on whether you have nukes that are coming out of winter or you're establishing nukes in March and April, or you're getting a package in April or maybe nukes in June, up to June, March, April of that period. It's still cool. That's the point. Sorry, go through all that. It's still cool. So when you have a young developing colony, and it gets down to, it was 37 the other night. If it's sitting on top of the hive, it's going to chill. But if it's down inside, it stands a chance to stay warm alongside the cluster of bees. So we say use an internal feeder, usually till about June, mid-May, June. In mid-May, June, in our area, beekeeping is local, so you need to look at your weather maps and the trends. It tends to be over 50-something degrees, 60 degrees at night. If it's 50-something degrees at night, yes, the liquid will cool off if it were on top. But it will warm up during the day because the day is going to be warm enough to transition it. So that's the key to switching from inside to outside. So we say put it inside to keep it warm up until that demark day in your area. And then go to the top. We like the Man Lake 10 frame feeders. The reason I like those and recommend them for our new folks is you can pour the food in, just take the roof off, and you don't have to open the hive. Now, the other thing we talk about when we feed is don't pour gallons up there. I mean, don't. if you pour a gallon in and then the next day you come in and you want to do an inspection and they didn't take it down, you have to move this thing with a gallon of liquid in it and you end up pouring it on your shoes. Or it stays up there because they're on the nectar flow and they don't want it and it ends up turning moldy. So even if you're using the top feeder, you know, one of the bad things they did with the design of that feeder is they let you feed gallons and gallons. I don't know what kind of hive actually needs three gallons because I think that's what they'll hold at any given point. Although I have to say I've done that <laughs> and have seen them drawing it down sometimes. But that's different. I'll talk about that in a second. So even if you switch from the internal feeder, and why do you switch from an internal feeder? If you're trying to develop a colony in 20 frames, you start with the first box and the feeder is there. So you have nine frames in your feeder and it's a little tight in there. When you want to feed, you just take the roof off, slide the inner cover over to expose the feeder and fill the feeder. Slide it over and close it up. When they fill the frames to the point where you're going to set the bottom box, it's good, and put another box on top. 
I tell you to take that feeder out, put the frame in, switch it with one of the frames that's drawn, put a drawn frame to the outside, put your new one inside of there, and tighten them up close together, and then put your second box on and put the feeder in it, if it's still too cold at night. That way, you don't have to take the top box off to feed. Now, yeah, the brood chamber is probably down below, but look, let's just go with the, the suggestion it works. Once you get to that period where it's warm enough, at night, that liquid on top of the hive is not going to chill, then you take that feeder out and make it 10 frames and 10 frames in the bottom boxes and put your feeder on top. Now, when you put the feeder on top, it doesn't change the rules. Pour cord in it and no more. They don't need a gallon. Now, that means you got to come back every once in a while and top them off. you got to be more proactive. But when they're on top, it's a lot easier, that's for sure. One of the other things about only feeding a quart or a smaller amount is that the bees generally take it down that day. And if it's dry the next day, that's good for you, right? It's not going to mold, like I said, and it's not going to cool off overnight. And they got what they needed. Think about this mass of the colony and how much they need. A quart will do. And if you want to dry them up a little bit, skip a day. Skip a couple days. How you know how much to feed is doing what I said before. Pull the frames out and look at how dry they are and whether they're dry and they have reserves. Now, if you start to see them hoarding sugar water out to the outsides and so on, okay. Now, let me transition to what I talked about a moment ago. I put a pin in it and I'm going to come back to it. When you're not on the nectar flow, now you're getting to July, August, in our region, in a lot of regions, but in our region, it starts to dry up some. You don't have trees with flowers on them. A lot of the flowers are drying up. It gets that dry summer month. Here's where you want to try and make your bees fat and happy. And you want them to start to, quote unquote, hoard or start to build their reserves. Here you could feed them a little bit more. Now, typically what we say is usually June to July is when the two boxes are full when you start a colony. It depends on whether you start with a package or a nuke. Nukes obviously get there faster. You might try to, in the early summer months, put a honey box on or a medium and have them draw your comb for you if they're where they should be in July. And in August and September, it's still warm enough and you can feed them the carbohydrates they need because it's not now coming from the nectar flow. The nectar flow is kind of tapered off by feeding them a little more on top. Now, think about where the colony is at that point in nature. They're two full deep brood boxes and the colony is 40 to 50,000 bees if they are all that they can be. Now, if you pour a gallon on, they'll take that gallon and the workforce will consume that gallon in order to make the wax required to put that top up. So when you get to that period, 
where you have a full-size operational colony and you're putting honey boxes on so that they can draw the comb for you, honey supers, which are mediums, you could feed them a little more than a quart. You could feed them a half gallon and see how that works. And if they take that half gallon and they're doing fine with it and they're not hoarding and causing those other problems, you could even put a gallon on it. Now, I'm not going to give you a recipe. It's a gallon a day, a quart a day, or whatever. You need to look at your bees every once in a while and figure out how fast they're going. Because every colony is like a child. They, they do this differently. And you also have different for, fauna than we do. Some people, the forage is amazing all year long. You know, you could have a locust bloom trees right next to you and your bees don't need a gallon in August. And other people are in dry areas and that gallon gets sucked down in a day. So you do have to inspect your bees and see what's going on and, and learn how your area works in this. The net-net takeaway for this is when there's flowers on the trees, you really don't need to feed. That's my new thing. And I just say it that way so it kind of resonates. Of course, you need to inspect and understand what's going on inside your colony. But that should be a reminder, that sentiment, that if you see flowers on the trees and you see flowers in full bloom all around your neighborhood, you need to... Be judicious about not overfeeding your bees. Full-size starter colony, whatever it may be. That's the new takeaway I'm, I'm landed on. And I'm going to start to emphasize that every year because the, the issue that I have is year on year, most people feed like crazy. They're told, feed your bees, feed your bees, but they're not giving the guidance on how to feed. And every new beekeeper wants to make sure that their colony doesn't starve. They don't have the wherewithal to know that they will or will not. Like, how do you know how much to feed them? And we're always over generous. And the problem, the problems that come from that are queen soup procedures and, and other issues. If the queen can't lay, this is an important aspect. Let's say that it doesn't drive tr swarm triggering. This is the last sidebar on this. Think about it this way. You overfeed and the colony is storing nectar all over the place and the queen can't lay. But they don't have really all those things that will drive them to swarm. So maybe they don't build swarm cells. Maybe they don't have enough stores that would trigger swarming. Maybe they realize they don't have enough bees to cast off a swarm and still survive. So they don't get into swarm mode. At minimum, the damage occurs when the queen can't lay eggs. If she's stopped in any way, you know what that, re that means? A reduction. It leads to a reduction in the population workforce. She's not laying eggs. You're not building subsequent rotations of bees coming in to increase the workforce during the nectar flow. You're, you're slowing the hive down, slowing the colony development down. So even if you're overfeeding and you're not causing the swarm condition, which is usually the problem, you are actually slowing the colony down. So just kind of think through this. I, I'm not trying to mandate anything. I'm trying to make you think as I did. 
critically about this and the instructions and so on and think, if I see flowers on the trees, do I really need to feed the bees? That's the takeaway. Topic number two, eight framers. I was working with my brother Keith, who followed my lead and purchased polystyrene hives. He bought 10 frames, the same bee box brand that I've been using from Blue Sky Bee Supply, who is a vendor of those. And while he was purchasing, he said to me, what about these eight frame hives? Hmm. What do you mean? <laughs> so come to learn that they have eight frame hives at Blue Sky Bee Supply in the polystyrene format. And I thought to myself, that's interesting, but I just bought all these six frame hives. Why would I buy eight frame hives? And I put that away for a couple of weeks until I had my colonies in my six frame hives. And even with five stacks, six frame over six frame over six frame over six frame, the hives swarmed away. It seems like they're really tight quarters in those. So while I'm still trying to learn my way with these six frame hives and see if I could run full size production colonies, my sensibility is already, and this is why you experiment and learn, that they're a little small from that standpoint. And also everybody comes in my yard and looks at that five stack of six framers and says, boy, that looks really tall and odd, you know? And I don't care what it looks like. To me, it's, is it functional and does it work? And for the most part, it does. And maybe the colony I have in that on pad one, which I'll talk about in the local hive report, the swarm that came out of it was gigantic. So this is what I would classify as the supreme colony. And honestly, it blew up before I could even do something, which I think is a byproduct of it's cool early in the spring and the polystyrene hives grow out quickly. So lo and behold, did I really need an eight frame version of this hive? Hmm. The answer is yeah. <laughs> the funny thing was, is they were having a sale. Blue sky. It was half price on the actual kit. And if I purchased three eight frame hives, the amount of money I saved because the hive itself was half price paid to cover the shipping, which is a lot of money coming from Ohio out here to New Jersey. So I ordered three of them, just finished painting and prepping them, and this weekend I'm putting them in service. I think, actually this is probably a better way to go, but one quick caution. Blue Sky was very clear that they only sell the deep versions of these. And one of the concerns I had, sight on scene, was, is an 8-frame poly the same as an 8-frame Langstroth wooden box that you'd buy from another vendor? Meaning the dimension. I found with my 10-frame polystyrene hives that you could put 10-frame woodenware equipment on them and it matches up. If you know the design, they have a rim and you can set a 10-frame box on and the roof and other things are interchangeable. I'm happy to say, for the most part, yes, the 8-frames are compatible. I have some 8-frame wooden equipment. I've tried that in the past. I've experimented with all these different high form factors, and 8-frame was one of them. So I have a handful of uh, equipment in that to try. 
So here's the way I thought about this. Three eight-frame hives I'll put into service in the polystyrene format, and I could put my eight-frame mediums, which I use for honey boxes, over top of them. In the wintertime, when time comes to compact everything down, two eight-frames is 16 frames, but they're in a poly, and I think that's a good size. So it's either two eight-frame hives or three six-frame, all the same. And that, I think, is the right dimension for an overwintering. And the good news is I don't have to insulate. So as I continue to explore going further into the polystyrene arena, a new one to play with, an eight-frame all-polystyrene hive. Now, I heard recently from someone that there's new 8-frame equipment out for other vendors. I, I haven't tried anything but the Bee Box. When I was at Better Bee, I saw Lyson equipment. The new Lyson equipment looks a lot like the equipment that I'm using from Bee Box. They seem to have borrowed from each other, or I, I don't know who came first or whatever. But um, the license stuff looks good, too. Now, the commentary I heard about the 8-frame license is it's 8-frame plus a little more, and maybe some call it a 9-frame. So when I posted on Facebook that I bought these 8-frames, some people asked, is it an 8-frame or 9-frame? Because there's some discussion out there about the size of these boxes. I would say it's 8-frame and a skosh bigger. When I set my 8-frame equipment on the rim on the top, it's just a little, like a quarter inch, three-eighths of an inch, too small for the form factor. The 8-frame poly sitting underneath it's just a little bit bigger, but I don't think that it's really, it's a nominal amount. It's not a big deal. Certainly the sides are not going to be smooth going up, and there'll be a little edge overhang if you put the wooden box on. But for me, I'm not going to overwinter in these. And for honey, I don't think it's going to matter. Now, I put eight frames in the box and centered them, and I think it's going to be okay. It might be possible that there's a skosh too much space to the sides. I guess I'm going to learn that over this summer. So if you follow along in the whole poly universe that I've been going down in 2020, 2021, now I have a new thing to report on. I'll tell you how these turn out as I get to use them. Eight-frame polys. They're going on the stands. Local Hive Report. I think you could tell by the intro that things are booming around here. The new yard is set up. The grass is growing. Everything looks pretty good. I decided at some point to carve out the top area and make 12 place for 12 hives and it turns out I ended up making a lucky 13th by happenstance. So where to start here? Let's start with swarms. I have a swarm trap sitting in my breezeway. That's what we call the one area where we, the open covered area where we cover our tractors and log splitter and such. Yep, swarm moved in. <laughs> that swarm trap every year pulls in. A new swarm. I was out there Saturday morning looking at it and the swarm trap is deeper than a regular hive and like every year I'm not smart enough to realize I should get them out of there quicker. They hung comb off of the comb and one of the slots was open 
So the bees built a full, beautiful sheet of comb hanging from the roof because they had no frame to work with. It's like they'll make their own top bar if they want. So I transferred the frames over and had to cut all the comb off in order to get it transferred. And I took empty Kelly F-frames that I have in stock and I wired, uh, used twine to hang the frames so I didn't lose, hang the comb so I didn't lose it. I set a swarm trap over by the old apiary, thinking, well, maybe the bees have some sort of recollection. It was sitting over next to the satellite dish, if you've ever watched any of the videos, and, yep, swarm moved in. I have a beekeeper friend who lives in the neighborhood that only wants a couple hives, and every once in a while he gets himself into position when the spring is good that the hives swarm. And I had talked about the Russian bees. Well, I got another one from there. So one went into a six-frame polystyrene swarm, and the other one went into, yep, I put the ware back in service. So the ware box, the swarm that went into that was really nice size. It filled one box, and I gave it a second box of just comb that's never been drawn out. My ware box, last time the wax moth ravaged and wrecked all the comb so I cut it all out re-waxed the bars and they're in there already building on it I got a call one day from a beekeeper in our neighborhood who was at work and had a swarm in his tree and Sharon and I went over and picked that one up and put it in a box so yeah when I talk about spring explosion this year from a swarm standpoint it's, it's almost like every day someone calls. I've actually received three calls where I either didn't get there fast enough, somebody else picked it up, or I just couldn't go get it. So needless to say, swarms aplenty. Good, good deal. Now as to my other hives, well, I had my own swarm. The five stack six frame that I talked about just a moment ago, that one swarmed. I was home, watched it swarmed, went into a tree, took photos of it, gone out, and hoped that maybe it would find its way into one of my swarm traps, but alas, it flew off. Who knows where it is? It's probably in the woods somewhere out behind us. Kind of frustrated, but that's part of learning these six-frame hives, and honestly, there are bees from floor to the ceiling, or, or you know, just stacked inside that hive. This weekend, and I'm recording this early, I haven't done it yet, but this weekend my plan is to break that box into separate hives. Either I'm going to take the 30 frames and put them in 20, two deeps, and 10, one deep, and, and make a split, even though they've already swarmed, or I'll divide them up in some way. I'm just not sure. The next pad is still a six over six runty hive. I might take one of those and combine them and make one good hive out of it. Down in pad number four is the hive that I thought was not doing well. So you know what's funny is sometimes you get these hives that come out of winter and they just they languish. They just don't go very well. 
They don't do anything. They don't do anything. And then all of a sudden, they just explode. I went in the cedar hive, and I was shocked to find that the entire bottom of the hive was stored with honey. Now, what the heck is that about? I don't know. I know that I did a spring reversal, but I put the brood down there and the honey on top. And they filled the entire bottom from frame one to frame 10 with honey, capped honey. It's already capped all of it. And the top box had foundation frames that I put in earlier in the year and they built them all out and they capped them all. And there's queen cells all over the place in there. So this hive is literally bursting with bees, again, from the floor to the ceiling, and ready to swarm like any second now. What I did was something very strange. There's so many bees in there, and I really didn't have time when I was working with it to try and go through 20 frames and find the queen. I took a reverse tactic. This one doesn't make any sense, but I did it anyway. And I'm gonna, I wanna see what's gonna happen. Instead of taking the queen and resources and making a split, I went the other route. I pulled six frames out. All of the frames that had queen cells or queen cells that were started, and I put them in a six frame poly nuke divided down the middle. So in essence, three frames, two of them with multiple queen cells and a food a combination pollen honey frame on one side and the second side had the exact same mirror. In essence, I made two queen castles that will eventually grow to full-size nukes, which will eventually by the season end go to full-size colonies. And I took six frames of foundation and I interspersed them between all of the, um, yeah, didn't put them in the honey chamber. I was thinking about that. I put them in the brood chamber. So the, the hive is going to be like, what the, what the heck did you do to me? But it'll be interesting to see what happens. Now they still have gobs of bees in there. And so my hope is that they're going to build plenty of foundation. And everybody who's, they don't have uh, nurse bees I took all the nurse bees out primarily. I did leave a little bit of brood. There's one frame there that's a full carpet of brood on both sides. So the future population in that hive is not going to suffer. They have tons and tons of bees, make no mistake. So the other odd experiment, you're not supposed to do two things at once, but I pulled all the queen cells out, gave them foundation, and then I put the, drum roll please, flow hive on top. Yeah. Somebody once gave me a flow hive. I tried it for two scenes and never got it to work. But my sense is, since they don't have all the brood to take care of, in the past what I've noticed is bees that are depleted of their brood to take care of turn to foraging. And I think there's so much honey in that box, they don't need to worry about where they're going to put it. So one of the things about the flow hive that I learned in the past, if there's other places to store honey, they're going to put it there. They're not going to use the flow hive. So the last thing that I did with this hive is I did a reversal. I took the brood, which was on top, I don't know why, and I put it on the bottom board. 
I took the bottom box, which was honey from one side to the other, and I put it over. Basically, it's like a honey dome. And then I put the flow hive on top. This is either a, a completely, utterly misguided effort on my part, or somehow by serendipity it's going to work out great. I don't know. I would have probably liked to have done something more concrete with the flow hive to see if I could get it to work. But at this point, I got so many things going on. I threw caution to the wind, slapped it up there, and let's see what happens. It's showtime over there on pad number four. As I look back through the apiary, pad number five was the all-medium hive. And in the last episode, I talked about taking a split. That box needs to be split again. I gave them 10 frames of foundation in a deep, and I gave them 10 frames of foundation in a medium. And looking at that hive, they've built it all out already. So now they have two mediums on the bottom, a deep in the middle, and a medium on top. They've got 40 frames, and they're all built out, and there's bees from the floor to the ceiling. That's the, I should have named this episode that. So I'm going to split that hive right in half make another one out of it. Over the next pad is the top bar hive. The top bar hive is going great. I put two medium supers over top of it. One of them is filled and the other one is on its way. I think this weekend, and again, I'm recording this on Saturday morning, so I didn't get to all my activities, but You'll hear in the next show what I did. I think I may have to take one of those mediums off and harvest it and give them another box of foundation. Or I really don't want to throw mediums on top and make it a super high stack. I could. I have not looked at the lanes hive. I could see it's operating and it must be doing what the cedar hive did. My expectation is that it's going to grow all the way through. It got a super, super slow start, but I think it's okay. Next to it, the Russian hive, the swarm that was there two weeks ago, it's doing great. My expectation is when I go in that it's going to be full of bees and it probably needs another deep. The only other hive that I haven't talked about is the 10 frame polystyrene hive sitting on pad number three. That hive in itself is just booming. I could tell by the front entrance it's going to be bees from the floor to the ceiling. I was dismayed last time when I looked in the honey boxes that they were putting brood up there. Nothing I can do about that. Mostly drones, which was really strange. You know, actually I should go through it and make sure that the queen is working right because if they're building a lot of drones... They're either prepping the swarm or something's goofy with the queen, and I should go find out which that is. My anticipation is that it's just got a huge population, and that's the only place they could find to put their drones, so they stuck them up there in the middle of my honey boxes. But I think when I find that that hive is fully operational, I need to make sure there's no queen cells in it, and if so... I'm going to throw a couple honey boxes on it and it's going to make some honey over the next, the end of May through into June. That box always performs every year. Now, the one thing that I haven't talked about that I really need to get on the stick with, 
And I wanted to say this, May is the time to monitor. If you haven't monitored yet or done anything, I did oxalic acid treatments back in early January, but I haven't done anything mite management since then. Last year, this worked well for me. In May, early May, I did my mite checks, found that I had some mites, and I treated with Formic Pro. I think I'm going to run that same game plan over the next week. So this week and next week, I will do my mite checks in early May here. Well, actually, it's mid-May. And I should have done it already, but I'm just trying to... The thing that threw me... <laughs> I'm all over the place, but I know it. I didn't anticipate ordering those eight-frame hives and having to do that. So I took a break in the midst of the season to prep that equipment. But the expansion that I have going on require me to do that anyway. I could have put all my stuff in my spare woodenware, but I have another plan. All of these splits that I'm talking about, I'm going to put in my 10 frame equipment and put it out in out yards like I've been talking about. So I do have the big picture in mind, but I can't lose focus on the mite management plan. So Sunday or sometime this week, I might even take a day off from work just because I have some I will go through and monitor for mites, and I have Formic Pro sitting in the can in case I need it. I like to do Formic Pro this time of year because it's not 90 degrees and gassing the bees. And if the Formic Pro sets them back a little bit, because sometimes it can be harsh on the colony, it'll be okay because they have more bees than they can deal with at this point. I mean, I hate to be crass and say that, but my experience is when you put Formic Pro in, you tend to lose some bees. And if you're ever going to suffer that fate, this is the time to do it when the colonies have, you know, some expendable, God, that's just awful to say, hurts me as a beekeeper, uh, population. So, wow, holy cow. I am gobsmacked by how healthy and, and how large these colonies are. I'm heading to Supreme Colony Land, which I don't love. And that's one of the reasons over this weekend, some of my ideas to break these hives down a little bit. I probably could have, in the past, left that cedar hive to be. And I would have allowed it to become a Supreme Colony and make me lots of honey. This year I split it up to take six frames of fully operational brood and queen cells out of it. It's a strange thing to do in the heart of the season. And it's not like I need more hives, but I broke it down because I don't want it to get monster. And it would. I'm shocked at how quick that hive turned around because last time I looked at it, it was languishing. I've bemoaned that on previous shows. So, you know, this comes back to one last point that I wanted to make about colonies. They're all like little children. They have different personalities. The other colonies that I had were fully booming by mid to late April. This colony was puttering along. Then all of a sudden, and this leads to that idea. When I looked at it last time, there were two or three frames of full eggs and brood in all stages. When those bees emerge, which happened probably late April, they get to work. You'll see a colony that just kind of putters along and then all of a sudden it's explosion because they have the workforce. 
couple that with great forage and this spring has been spectacular here in New Jersey. The weather's been right. We've had the mix of sunny days and then a little rain to water the plants and so on. It makes for one of those, you know, every once in a while amazing springs. And that's what we've had so far. I think that's enough to chew on. Local hive report. Yeah. Gobsmacked. Check. Everything's good to go here. And I'm in one of those moments where I'm really enjoying this, right? You wait all winter for that anticipation and now you're in the middle and it's like, wow, this is, this is great. This is amazing. <laughs> Even my brother Keith and, and his wife Karina, their hives are swarmed and split and going crazy. And everybody I talk to, same thing. So enjoy it. Enjoy the ride, everybody. Let me hit some closing comments to end the show out. I've depleted the stack of everything I wanted to talk about. And, you know, one of the things I have coming up is queen rearing. Last year, Bob Kloss and I did it together. and We got a late start, probably June time frame. This is the time frame that I wanted to do it. I'm questioning myself. Why am I raising queens? <laughs> I can't keep up with what I have going on. But, you know, the next week will... Give me some clarity. I'm trying to learn the NICO device for a long-term objective. I don't know what I'll do with these queens. I was thinking to myself, is a reared queen better than a queen that the bees built in swarm season? I don't know the answer, but the good news is all the stock that I have is overwintered stock stock that is survivor stock origin thank you bob claus that's where i got most of it now i do have some of these swarms that i have no idea where the stuff came from but there's spring swarms from colonies that overwintered that i'm sure of so i guess i have a decision to make about where to go with that but it has been a very ad hoc season and you know, it's like the art of war. People always go into war with a battle plan, but as soon as the battle starts, everything changes. I don't like to use the war analogy, so let's just use the project plan. The agile manner that I spoke about in a couple episodes ago is in full swing. And what I do is try to set my objectives up for whatever the week has in store, and then I move along. And I try to keep my long-term objectives. So I've talked about this a lot. One of my long-term objectives is to get all that equipment out of my garage. And since I've switched over a lot of my hives to polystyrene, I have all this woodenware sitting in my garage. It's mounting. And my goal is to make all these splits and put these wooden boxes out and out yards and let them do their thing. So it's been a very agile season. But I do look at my equipment holistically and say, this is what I want to do. That's what I want to do. The, the one thing, I created a top bar hive out of something I found along the road. And I've never put that hive into service. But I'm trying to show some constraint and stick to the plant. That would be a distraction. As much as I want to put that hive into service, I haven't done it yet. Now, the interesting thing is, I still have swamp traps sitting out. 
And if swarms move into them, then I have to deal with them. But it's been such a good season. How do you give up free peace? It's an illness. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. Maybe along the way we'll talk about some additional hives that have come into the vault. I think with all these hives, you can now understand why we bought a 20-frame extractor versus a smaller one. Because, quite honestly, by the end of the season, we should have honey coming out of our ears to extract. But we'll... One thing at a time, Kevin. Don't get ahead of yourself in the story. Thanks for uh, coming in, everybody, and paying attention. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Be well, everybody. Be safe. Take care.